Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas at Life Over Coffee. I'm very glad uh, that you're here. I want to talk about something that is pertinent to all of us, and that is being stuck in a bad habit. I'm not suggesting that you are stuck in a bad habit, but you have been as as I have been. And I'm sure that you know somebody that's stuck in a rut. They have a sinful habituation in their lives. And what I want to share with you, it will help them to overcome it. And so I hope as you go through this with me uh, that you can make many notes and apply what you need to to your life, but also doing the work of discipleship. If you have that friend who is stuck and let's say it's the new year and they're ready to make that resolution, a lot of people do that. Of course, it doesn't matter what day of the year it is. Any day is a good day to start working through our habituations. And so I hope that this will be a help for you so that you can help them. If you want to find this resource at our ministry, go to episode 495. That is what you're looking for. It's titled, Here is Practical Help for Anyone Stuck in a Bad Habit. You see, a person with a bad habit needs a clear path to freedom, though it's not always clear which pathway to take. There is so much information in our world today that it just, quite frankly, it becomes confusing. There's biblical information, and I'm not just talking about books, but there are videos and other resources, and many of them can help you, and I recommend a few especially what we have here at lifeovercoffee.com. And then you have a mashup of an integrated approach to transformation where they take a little bit of Bible and a little bit of secular psychology. Don't think too much of that. And then you have those who are adherents to the DSM-5-TR. That is the current culture's Bible. Don't recommend that at all. But that can become confusing because the person can look out and say, I just do not know uh, which way to go, which path to take. And so as he thinks about freeing himself from bondage, there are two things that I would recommend that he understand, that he write down, and he began to work through them in order. First of all, he must begin with a rational worldview that lays a foundation. Think of it like a house. A house that's built well is built on a foundation. If the foundation is not correct, well, then the structure that you plop down on that foundation, it will not be right either. And I do think that many times that when people are going through a habituation, they're trying to overcome it, they run up on January the 1st, and I'm going to make that resolution. Well, by January the 15th, they find themselves in a ditch again, but it's because they were going with the behavioral modification approach, the practical application approach, but they haven't dealt with a biblical foundation, that rational worldview that I was talking about. And so there are two parts. He must begin with a rational worldview. We cannot cannot overlook this part. It will lay a foundation for the practical application that flows out of that worldview, and that is the second part. So if you're struggling with an addiction, a bad habit, stuck in a rut, or if you know someone who is, then here is the clear path. The worldview and your practical path forward. And so I'm going to start by laying out a biblical worldview, probably in an unsuspecting place. And I'll frame it this way by asking you a question just to tease it out a little bit. 
Thinking about a rational worldview, here's the question. What is a covenant? That is where you want to start. So essential. Now, it will probably not be evident to the person that you're helping, and I wouldn't even recommend that you ask this question because it could be confusing. But you need to define what a covenant is. It is absolutely essential that he knows what a covenant is. A covenant means to separate from all others and to commit to one. That is the simple way of defining what a covenant is. And you can see implied in that definition why it is absolutely essential that we understand what a covenant is and that we calibrate our minds with the proper covenant. In Exodus, uh, God told Moses that you will have no other gods before me. Little G-O-Ds. And so we make a covenant with God, meaning that He is our transcending authority, that He is our transcending affection, that no other God will have authority over us. No other God will manage us, meaning that we will not submit ourselves to sin that we'll have no other affection that's greater than God, meaning we will not submit ourselves to sin. You, you can see why it's important that we understand what a covenant is and then be able to make that practical application. And so we have to reorient our minds. We have to anchor our hearts in this covenant that we have with the Lord. If He is our transcending authority and our transcending affection, then we won't find ourselves in sinful habituations. We won't get stuck in these ruts. Sin will not capture our hearts. And so understanding what a covenant is is ab absolutely essential. Now, I want to illustrate this by talking about another covenant that you're familiar with, and that is our marriage covenant, for example. Now, in marriage, having a covenant with your spouse doesn't mean that you're going to separate <laughs> and not interact with any other person of the opposite sex in the world whatsoever. So it means as a husband, uh, you have a covenant with your wife. You're not going to look at a woman, talk to a woman, interact with a woman for the rest of your days. No, that's not what a covenant means. And it's the same for a woman. What a covenant means in this illustration, it means that nobody from the opposite sex will have power over you. It means that you won't have more love for anyone than your life uh, than your than your spouse if you're a man it'll be your wife wife it'll be your your husband no you can engage all humanity male and female that's fine you live in the world you want to be culturally relevant not socially awkward and so you're not going to pretend that no women in the world exist at all if you you are a man but it means that none of them will gain your affection more than what you have for your spouse. Now, as far as living in the world is concerned, no, we have a covenant with God. So it means we can live in the world, but we won't be managed by the world. We have to live in the world. We cannot separate from the world no more than a husband can separate from all the women in the world. So there, I mean, there could be some wisdom in separating from some women. There could be some wisdom in separating from a particular woman, if your heart lusts after them, if you haven't truly calibrated your covenant with the Lord, that there are vulnerabilities in your heart to where you lust over certain women, well then, that type of separation from the world, that's not legalism. 
But that's wisdom practically applied. The person who recognizes that he lusts after certain women would be a fool uh, to associate with certain women, would be a fool to put himself in real time and space or in cyberspace to where the lust of his heart can be unprotected and the vulnerabilities kick in and he, he submits to what is dialed up, spun up in his, in his heart. And so having a covenant with your wife doesn't mean that you separate from all the women in the world. But it means that you will not be managed by any other woman in the world. You, you will not have affection more than the affection that you have for your wife. It could mean that you need to separate from some. So the vital idea to remember is that the evil in play here, it, it's not about the other woman in this illustration. And we have to get that right. Some people think that, well, if I can get away from that woman, then I will not have this lust and I will not have have this desire in my heart. No, well, that's not how it works. That's not the proper sequence. We cannot say that woman made me lust after her, or a woman could not say that thing made me lust after it, whatever it is. That would be contrary to what James is teaching in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says that lust begins in our hearts, and when it is conceived, it turns into sin, and then sin eventually leads to death. Notice the sequencing. Particularly notice the origin of sin, the cause of sin, where you should place your focus. Again, we don't want to fall into that victim mentality where, well, if she hadn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that. That is not the sequence. If you weren't already in a lustful state, in the condition of your heart, then you would not have fallen prey to her. The wrong-headed perspective is to say, well, it was that woman who is the cause of these passions in my heart. I must stay away from them, stay away from her because she is the cause. Maybe you need to stay away from her, but she is not the cause. Our hearts are like divining rods to where we're looking for water. And when we find it, I mean, we are just drawn to it. And again, this is what James is teaching, and we've got to understand. The view of separating from a woman or all women, all women again, it will make you socially awkward and make you out of step with the culture. But it will also keep you from addressing the real issue, what's going on in the heart and the individual will never change. You will separate from all women, and you will still not find the cure for the problem. Let's say that we could just evaporate every woman in the world. Great, I will not lust anymore. Well, sin, lust, passion, it will continue to be there. And what it will be doing, the divining rod will not find a woman in order to, to place its lust upon the, the, the divining rod will begin to look for other ways to express itself. So let's suppose you removed yourself from every woman in the world. There is no object for you to place your lust. You will address the passion in your heart another way through some other form of gratification, whether it's sexual or another option. There's no women in the world. But I have lust in my heart because that is where it began. So now I'm going to binge watch television. I'm going to overeat. I'm going to do endless scrolling. I'll just spend money and find comfort through the things that I buy. We've got to understand this. If we don't have this rational worldview 
about a covenant, one, that we have a transcending authority and a transcending affection. That is one that has to be calibrated in our hearts. And then number two, if we don't have a rational worldview about the genesis of sin, well, then we will become a victim uh, to what is going on out there, never recognizing that it's our evil hearts that desires those things. I was counseling a man a number of years ago who had given up porn. He came in because he had a porn addiction, a habituation in porn that went on for multiple decades. Well, he did give up porn. He cut porn. He evaporated porn out of his life. He had uh, software on his devices. He didn't go to places uh, where he had uh, frequented before, and he gained 30 pounds, removed all the sexual perversion out of his life, and he gained 30 pounds. He didn't fix the problem. He just redirected his lust in another direction. The legalist who believes the problem is out there somewhere will do similarly, and he will go through similar cycles of addiction. Stop, start, stop, start, stop, and start, repeat. He will do it over and over again because he thinks that the problem is out there. He is a victim to the world in which he lives, not recognizing what James says. Why do we sin? Because the passion is in our hearts. And so he has to have a rational worldview. He begins with a covenant where he calibrates his heart to a covenant with God to where God is his transcending authority. God is his transcending affection. There is no other authority that will manage him. There are no other gods that are before him. And there's no other affection that is greater than the affection that he has for the Lord. Anytime we externalize sin's cause as being out there somewhere, we may retreat from all of those temptations, again, missing the source of the allurement. There is wisdom in separating from specific things or specific people if those things stir up the pre-existing sin in our hearts. But if we place the primary accent mark on that thing or that person, we will miss sin's origin. The point of separating from certain things is because we know what is in our hearts. We have to be sober-minded. We can't play this game. We have to be very honest, not intellectually dishonest, because if you're going to address what's wrong with you, if I'm going to address what's wrong with me, if you're helping someone and you want them to address this habituation, then they cannot be focused primarily on the thing or the person that is out there somewhere. And so as you move inward, realizing that the fountainhead for all sin, all temptation, all stumbling blocks, it rises from the heart and it attaches itself to various precious subjects in our culture, then you're in the right place to interact with the problem. It may be possible to remove what is going on in your heart. We call that mortification. In Romans 8.13, Paul talked about mortifying the deeds of the flesh. To mortify means to, to take the vitality out of it, to kill it dead. That is something that takes time, but over a period of time, a season in your life, as you address the heart idolatry, what is going on inside of you, these lusts, these passions, these desires, 
it could be possible that those heart idolatries are completely vanquished. Now, we, we do want to be intellectually honest about that. We want to be very clear-headed that we're truly, our hearts are not drawn to those things in the culture. Uh, this is not time to play. This is serious business, and we want to make sure that our hearts have been eradicated of specific heart idolatries. And if that's true, then you could possibly engage those former tempting objects in the future because your heart does not desire them. Alternatively, it could be that your mortification, the killing of those heart idolatries, it could be a lifelong process. Sometimes the Lord does not remove the things that, from our perspective, they hinder us. From our perspective, they make us vulnerable and weak. By the way, that is exactly what God wants. Think about 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul had a thorn in his flesh, whatever that means, and he asked, God, he asked God to remove it from him, and God gave some interesting counsel in verse number 9 in 2 Corinthians 12. He said no. Paul prayed three times. He said no three times. The Lord told Paul that my strength is perfected in your weakness. You see, sometimes in some of our lives, God has to use external things in our lives to keep us in a place of, of humility, vulnerability, and weakness. Our temptation is toward self-reliance, and God's way of breaking us of self-reliance is by keeping things in our life that from our view, it actually seems like impediments. God, if I did not have this in my life, if this was not a struggle, then I could do more, be more. I could accomplish more for you. No, actually, uh, Paul, well, he gave us the secret to life as you wrestle through that text in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul said, I will therefore most gladly boast in my weaknesses. And then he gave us the secret to life in verse number 10. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And you see the foolishness of the gospel punctuated right there, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that the weakness of God is stronger than man, that the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Sometimes God has to keep us in a place of humility so that we can experience the strength of the Lord. Another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul said that I do not want you to be ignorant of about the affliction that we experienced in Asia, that we were burdened beyond our strength to where we even despaired of life. But God was teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on Him who raises the dead. And so there may be a possibility that you can mortify the deeds of the body and completely eradicate the lust and desires of the heart so that you can be free to interact with those former objects that used to be temptations in your heart. But there could be another situation to where God does not fully remove that temptation from your heart because it's an exercise in humility and strengthening from the Lord as you lean into Him in your weakness to gain His strength over your weakness. It's like a recurring skin disease like eczema, for example. You put a topical ointment on the problem and you, you know it's going to recur. And you have to keep applying the medication. You don't despair because there is a daily, there's a daily cure. 
they're not a permanent cure, not until you get a new body. And some of us will have internal psych angst, psych being soul. We'll have internal soul dysfunction that we will not completely rid ourselves of. But we do not despair. Though this outward body is decaying, wasting away day by day, we are being renewed day by day in Christ. And so we are not the despairing people because he who lives in us is greater than he who lives in the world. It doesn't mean that we're going to overcome all of our problems internally or externally. We do not preach a social gospel where you can have your best life now. You may have the life that you did not want, but what Christians find all too often is that the God, the story that God is writing is the narrative that we need because that is the pathway to where we experience God in ways that we could not experience Him if we were in optimal health and had no internal struggles whatsoever. And so whether you find a permanent temporary cure for the things that you struggle with internally Sometimes our solutions are not how we would prescribe them, but the humble heart receives the Lord's mercies with gratitude and active obedience. This type of teaching is for those who, those with ears to hear. And if you do have biblical ears, if you have your biblical ears on, then you're on the path for more extraordinary transformation. And so in the first part here, I, I've dealt with a rational worldview and there were a couple of parts there. One, make sure that we understand. The person that you're helping, that they understand what a covenant is. They've got to have the transcending authority of God in their lives. They have to have a transcending affection for Him. And they also have to have a, a, an understanding of the sequencing of sin. It starts in our hearts. We are not victims to what is going on in our lives. No, we, we have agency and we can respond. And in this second part, I'm going to give you a practical plan to respond. But it is important that we understand that sin's origin is in our hearts. And we can remove every object in our world, but we will still lust. We will still have passions. We will still have these sinful desires. And for some people, they will be completely mortified out of their lives. For other people, for whatever reasons and the mysteries and wisdom of God, they will not be mortified at all. But in that, as Paul realized in 2 Corinthians 12, that he, that we, can experience God's strength through our weakness. So now we are situated to practically engage God because we have a rational worldview that forms the foundation on which to place this practical structure. And so now I I want to circle back to active obedience. I want to talk about our role now, practically speaking. You know, it's accurate to say that the Lord changes us and, and shapes us into our image. We learn that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We call this passive obedience. And so passive obedience is we just relish in the truth that God changes us. Some people say, let go and let, let God. That's kind of a, it's not just quirky, but it can be dangerous because we're not inactive recipients of God's transforming power. It is both passive obedience and active obedience. Passive obedience is what God is doing in us, through us. It is us growing as God actively works in our hearts. But active obedience is a thing, too. That's where we are the active agents. 
We have a responsibility before the Lord to work out what He is working in us. And so the remainder of this episode here, I want to speak to our need, or the person that you're helping, the person who is addicted to something. They have to respond with humble, unashamed, courageous, active obedience. They have to do something. And they do this as though their life depends upon it. Now, in one sense, their spiritual life does depend on it. We must throw human wisdom and self-reliance to the wind, and we must embrace the radical, transforming doctrine of grace as we engage God in the way that changes our lives. Now, if you're helping someone, this is something that, that you will have to subjectively discern. We can't objectively discern the seriousness of someone's life, but what you'll find in many cases is that people are doing damage control, or they want relief. They don't want true restoration or true uh, transformation. I've seen this in counseling so many times where they, they come to counseling because they got caught. They come to counseling because the troubles in their lives have risen to the point to where they just cannot manage, manage it. And so they, they seem desperate. They seem serious. They seem like they really want to do uh, what they need to do to change. This is also what you'll find on New Year's Day, or on January the 15th, rather, that maybe they began with good intentions, but they did not have a full understanding of some of the things that I'm explaining here. Their covenant with the Lord was not riveted in and anchored in Him. They did not understand how their hearts are so deceptive and so lustful and how they need to understand that sequencing that if I remove that from my life, I'm going to be okay. No, no, you won't be okay. You'll, you'll gain 30 pounds over here. And so they didn't understand these things. And then by January the 15th, they're back in the trough where they were before. And so you want to gauge this, not uncharitably judging them, them, not self-righteously looking down on them, but the opposite of judging someone is not no assessment at all, no observation at all. No, we have to discern the people that we are helping. We have to somewhat measure the seriousness uh, that they have for the process. And there is a way to measure that seriousness by going into this second part by laying out a practical plan for them to change. And so I have sets of questions that I want to ask. Some of them will apply. Some of them will not. These are questions, and it would give you a lot of tools in your toolbox, whether you are examining yourself or examining someone else to help them to change. And so I'll just walk through each one of these questions and then Again, if you want the full list, uh, just go to episode 495 at lifeovercoffee.com and you're looking for here is practical help for anyone who is stuck in a, a bad habit. And these questions will be perfect. By the way, you can print off the show notes here. Uh, just go to the bottom of the page. There is a print feature. You can print these off and again, make them your own. Add to them, uh, use them as you serve others. So this is the practical application part. Question number one, what is the thing that has you stuck in a bad habit? We have to say the quiet part aloud. Maybe you can say it now. You're by yourself. What is the thing? We know what the thing is. We're not so dumb. We're not so unintelligent that we're not aware 
of what our heart craves, what our hearts lust, lust after. Part of saying it, saying it out loud, writing it down on a, a piece of paper, now we're starting to, to own it. We've really got to own it. It's kind of like reading a book. When you read a book with a highlighter and you highlight a quote, a, a sentence, a phrase, just highlighting it now, it comes a little higher off the page and you're starting to, that's my quote. I own that quote. Of all the stuff in this on this page, that's what I want to remember. I'm highlighting it. I am owning it. That's what you have to do here. And so what is the thing that has you stuck in a bad habit? Write it down. Say it aloud. And then part two, uh, who knows about it? Now, I'm not talking about putting it on X or any of the other socials. A fool reveals his entire mind. I'm not talking about that. But we have to have at least one person. Now, I'm going to come back to this a few times, but it's important to say right here now. There has to be one person who knows what's going on in our lives. And so it's a competent person. It's a sturdy soul. It's someone that can receive this kind of information. Think about what you're saying. Now, it may depend on the content of what you have to say. But a person who receives another person's struggle, another person's sinful habituation, there has to be a sturdiness about them. There has to be a competency about them, a courageousness as well as compassion. And so who knows about it? And then the third part of this, what is the thing uh, that has you stuck? Who knows about it? And then what have they said to you? What kind of counsel are they providing you next? Have you protected yourself from everything that tempts you to sin? And so you put yourself you on a piece of paper, you, you, you put yourself right in the center, and then you look at all the things around the perimeter of your life. Uh, we would talk about these as being companions. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that bad companions corrupt. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But, but what are those things that are corrupting to you? Maybe a person, maybe a thing. What are the tributaries that flow into your mind, that flow into your psyche, that flow into your soul, uh, that tempt you, that it, it stirs up that pre-existing lust that is in your heart? What specific thing remains in your sphere that you have not cut off, that you have not amputated? And in many cases, what you will find is that people know what that thing is, but they, they don't amputate it. They don't cut it off. If you've not cut everything out, uh, then you're not where you need to be, and you must address why that thing is still there. Now, there are some things that we cannot completely cut, our, cut out of our lives because of maybe the situation uh, that we are in. If you live in a, We live in a technological world, and, so, and we can't retreat from that. Uh, all of our health information, for example, there's so much other information that is online, and that's where it is, and we have to interact online, and so we have access to online, and so we can't completely cut technology out of our lives because our culture has already moved to the point of no return. And so there are things that we can't completely amputate, but have you honestly addressed all of those things that are in your life? What is still amputatable, and will you amputate? If you know how to sin and, and to create create opportunities to do so, which we all do, 
we all are highly capable of sinning. We are professionals. Uh, we are Adamic creatures. We are fallen, totally depraved, as the Bible would teach. And so we know how to sin. We not only know how to sin, but we know how to create, create opportunities to sin. Those of you who are parents, you've seen that in your children when they were young. It's like, wow, they are professionals too. They know how to sin, and they know how to create opportunity to sin. By the way, that's good news. Because what that means is that we have enough intelligence and enough power to change. The fact that we can sin and create opportunity to sin, well, just spin it on its head. Uh, infuse it with the gospel. Well, now we know how to do good. We have intelligence to do good, and we can create opportunities for transformation. My point here is, is that we are not victims because we know how to think about our addiction. We know how to put ourselves in places to where we can enjoy those, those little G-O-Ds. And if this is true, the question is, why do you do it? Now, this would be a question, an essay question of sorts, to where the individual that you are discipling, why do you do it? He or she has to explore what is going on in their hearts. They have to understand these hidden idolatries and understand why their covenant is not exactly calibrated correctly. And then you want to ask this question, are you serious about changing yourself? This is one of the ways that you will be able to discern the seriousness. Have they identified all the things that are amputatable from their life? Have they done everything that they could possibly do to cut those things out of their lives? Are they playing the victim card as though they cannot change? And you'll hear this. You'll hear the grumbling complainer person. Now, I would ask you to be careful here. Because sometimes people can get in such an extended rut that they become discouraged, despairing, and depressed. And they won't hear their Eeyore-ishness as they act like Eeyore because they've been in this habituation of grumbling and complaining. They have given up in many ways on, on life, and so they will make excuses. And so there is a tension here between courage and compassion. I would not be able to tell you in any specific way how to do this with a specific person because I don't know the person that you're dealing with, but there's an interplay with this type of person where they need courage, which is confrontation, but they need compassion where you don't want to be harsh. And so you ask the Spirit of God to give you the illumination that you need to speak the appropriate word to this person, especially someone who is in a place of despair or discouragement because they have been in this rut for so long. But they have to know there is an element of work involved in sinning, creating these contexts to where we can sin. I mean, for example, there's premeditation. Now, all of these are good things because you flip all of these things on its head. You infuse all of these things with the gospel. And when you do, well, then everything that you use for sinning, now you use for gospel transformation. And so there's an element of work involved in sinning, like premeditation, planning, strategy, intentionality. There's hiding. The inversion of hiding is being transparent. If you can hide, you can be transparent. Secrecy. If you cannot say something, then you, you can communicate. You can say something. Deception energy. All of those things are involved. That, that's part of the work. That's the word cloud that surrounds the work involved in sinning. 
meaning the habitualized person is not lazy. The problem is not lazy. Well, he's just a lazy bum. No, he's not a lazy bum. Actually, he's a strategist. He is strategizing how he can be lazy. He's strategizing how he can sin. There's a lot of things involved in his sinning. And so we don't want to think that, well, he's just a victim. He has an organic problem that he just cannot overcome this. No, he can overcome a lot. Think about all the things that's involved in how he sins. Premeditation, planning, strategy, intentionality, hiding, secrecy, deception, and energy. He can't say he can't quit because he shows much ability to commit the transgression. I can't quit doing this. Oh, you most certainly can. Look at all the ability that you have in doing it. Now, assuming you are humble and you want to change, what are those plans? You're a strategist. You're not lazy. What is your strategy? What is the practical input from others? So there's two parts here. And you want them to think through the strategy that they need to implement to overcome this habituation. One of the things, a mistake that we can make as disciple makers is that we can give them the answers rather than them working for the answers. And so don't give them all the answers up front. Make them sweat it out. Make them think. Make them work through it. We don't want to give fish to everyone. We want to teach them how to fish. Very similar to the calculator. You don't want to use the calculator. Take the calculator away. Make them learn 2 plus 2. Make them learn division. Make them learn these mathematical formulas rather than just giving them, uh, submitting it to chat GPT where they can go through AI and get all the answers without any kind of sweat of the brow, without any kind of input themselves. And so part one... Have them to work up a strategy. And then part two, uh, you then give input to them uh, to help formulate a, a strategy that will really put them on the right path. And then what is the accountability process to maintain the rigors of obedience? Because this is what's going to happen on January the 15th. This is what happens with many people on January the 15th. They made the resolution. They implemented the plan. Uh, but one thing they did not have in the plan is they did not have an accountability process to maintain the rigors of obedience. Our default is uh, to do the easy thing, to cut corners, to circumvent. Our default is not the sweat of the brow, do hard things, perseverance. No, and that's why we need other people in our lives. We need that coach who is yelling or speaking in our ear that is motivating us to move down that path because our default will be to let up. Now, I'm like this, you're like this, and the person that you're helping is going to be like that too. And so there has to be an accountability process to maintain the rigors of obedience. One of the things you also want to assess is that the individual that you're helping, do they continue to take in more information about their problem when they already know what to do? Meaning they are more informational than transformational. You'll have some people who are like ever learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They read book after book after book. I've seen this in counseling a zillion times as well. They come to marriage counseling. It's like, how many books have you read? Well, we're on book number seven. Oh, you're taking in a lot of information. And then when you begin to talk to them, there's just so many simplistic things that they could do, like stop yelling at your wife, for example. 
and there are many other things. Uh, but that, for some people, that just doesn't click. They're on the informational path, and they need to be uprooted and snapped into the transformational path. Now, maybe that is intentional. Uh, maybe that they're being rebellious or defiant. And, you know, as James said in 4.17, to him that knows to do good but does not do it to him, that is sin, and that could be happening here. But maybe they need that gentle nudge to snap them into transformation by letting them know that you're in informational overload now. You really do not need more data. By the way, this is what you will this is what you will find in more Christianized areas, more Christianized people, is that they already have the information. They just need to do what they already know to do. Now, sometimes they need someone. That's where the accountability uh, is helpful. And I would see that in my own life as well. There are things that I know to do, but I'm just not motivated to do them. I will procrastinate. And that's why it's important that when you make these decisions to do something, uh, as far as changing your life, there is a pre-accountability aspect to that. Pre-accountability means that I am going to tell you uh, or pre-obedience might be a good way of saying it. Before I become obedient, I'm going to tell you about my future obedience. And so you tell someone what you're going to do. It's pre-obedience. It's pre-accountability. Because we know what our temptations are. Our temptations are, I mean, if we can, if we can plan to change in silence, implement, implement the plan in silence, uh, well, nobody knows about it. Therefore, we can stop doing it in silence. And that is why you get to January the 15th and you stop. But if you become pre-obedient by having pre-accountability, knowing what your heart direction tends to lean toward, then you're setting yourself up for proper accountability to where you can experience transformation. Transformation is an active obedience that has outside intervention from friends. And so you want them to describe how they are actively changing and talk about the external input. Do not let them off the hook here. Now, again, there are two ditches that I've identified. One ditch is say nothing to no one, move on silently, and you can quit anytime. The other ditch is putting it out on social and all of that nonsense. Stay off that. But right in this middle space, there is one or two people that you can bring into what is happening into your life, receive their external input, get the help that you need to stay on course. Now, I want to come back to these companions that I talked about earlier. So you draw a picture of yourself in the middle of the page, and then out on the perimeter, you have all of these companions. Now, these companions are not just friends, not just humans, what I'm saying. Uh, these are associations. Uh, they can be other means uh, that you surround yourself with. Uh, the books that you read, the movies that you watch, the music that you listen to, the places that you go, the hobbies that you have, etc. And so companions, bad companions will corrupt. Now, what you want them to do is to put themselves in the middle of the paper and then create good companions because you want to invert what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15. So if bad companions corrupt, then good companions will redeem. And so you invert that, and then you begin to identify these good companions that, that this person needs to create, these tributaries that flow into the individual's mind. 
that saturates the psyche, the soul, to bring that transformation internally because we know uh, that we have this heart transformation that has to take place. And so you have these external account accountability partners, as I was talking about earlier, at least one. But there's other tributaries as well. You can be belong to a, a local church, obviously. A small group, if they have them. Men's group, ladies group. Go through a program, as they have seasonal programs in the church to participate. Serving in the church, serving in the community would be fantastic because that is counter to a sin-centered life. A, a serving life is the exact opposite. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4, verses 25 and following. Let the thief steal no more, but let him get a job and work with his hands. Why? So that he can give. And so he's doing the opposite of what he was doing before. He's not in a self-centered sin mode, but he is in other-centered serving mode. And so you can serve in your community. That would be an excellent companion. Serve in your church if you have a particular gift. Uh, you can be uh, participate in a, a ministry of the church. Uh, it could be the music ministry. It could, it could be virtually anything, taking care of the kids, set up, tear down, administration, sound team, so forth and so on. But there's many ways that you can serve in a local church. Of course, the music that you listen to, uh, reading your Bible, memorizing your Bible, the things that you watch, things that you see, the things that you hear. And so again, just think through collectively all the things that feed your brain. Uh, Audible, uh, books you listen to, maybe. Podcasts you listen to, Obviously, uh, one of your good companions is lifeovercoffee.com. You want to watch these wonderful videos. You want to listen to these awesome podcasts. Uh, you want to uh, subscribe, follow uh, on SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, Podbean, iTunes, wherever. Uh, you want to listen to these podcasts. You want to go into our coffee shop. And you'll take advantage of thousands, literally thousands of resources millions of words, and they're free. And so life over coffee should be one of your good companions. And so put yourself in the middle, invert bad companions, create good companions. And then I want to give you, lastly, a few proactive steps to think about. Now, there's no order of sequence here. These are not mandatory. It's merely suggestive. This whole practical list that I've been walking through Again, you can find it at episode 495 at lifeovercoffee.com. But these are suggestive, and now I want to give you one final collection of suggestive ideas to think about. Number one, report your ongoing action steps to an accountability partner. I've talked about this a couple of times, but I want to put it in a specific line item uh, so that it is ultra clear because this is a non-negotiable. You have to have at least one. Number two, share these things with your spouse if you're married, caveat, and your relationship is stable enough. Now, ideally, it is best for your spouse to be your accountability partner because your spouse has more data on you than anyone else. You could buffalo a lot of people, but you're not going to buffalo your spouse because he or she has been living with you for years now. They know how you think. They can finish your sentences. Uh, they know all of your quirks and all your peculiarities. And so ideally, uh, your accountability partner would be your spouse. But there is a huge caveat here because what happens in many situations like this, especially when there's a habituation, that that marriage is not stable already because that habituation has already divided the marriage some way, somehow. 
And so the marriage might not be in a place of stability. And what you want what you don't want to do is to not just weight that marriage down even further, but also demolish it because of whatever the information is that you share. Now, let me talk a little bit about secrecy, keeping secrets, uh, because there are two things that you have to consider. They hinge on the motivation of a person's heart. You see, Jesus kept secrets from his disciples because they were not mature enough to receive all the information uh, that he wanted to tell them. We call this the messianic secret in the four gospels to where he kept secret what he came to do until a certain time. And we see the big reveal in Mark 8 where he told the disciples that he came to die. Of course, Peter responded adversely to that as we see in the text. But Jesus kept secrets because he incrementally dripped out information to other people. He would not share information at all. And so there is wisdom in keeping information to yourself. By the way, parents do this all the time. You know a lot more than what you tell your children and you would not dare tell your children some of the things that you know because they're not mature enough, not ready enough to hear all about the facts of life. And so you incrementally drip information out to your children. Are you hiding stuff sinfully? Are you being deceptive? No, not at all. You're being very wise as Jesus was wise. And so you can make a case for keeping secrets because the motive of your heart is in the right place. Well, the other part of that is that your motive is to hide stuff and to be deceptive, not reveal yourself. So that, that is a wisdom issue. And so for many people who have a habituation in their life, it might not be the time to share with your spouse. But if your marriage is sturdy, stable enough to where you can have this conversation, then ideally the person who knows you the best would be your best accountability partner. If you are unsure about who that person is, uh, or unsure as whether you can share that information with your spouse, then talking to someone of the same sex would be wise and say, hey, Here's the deal. This is what I would like to do, but I'm not sure if this is wise. Now, number three, create structure in your life. Create disciplines in your life. Lesser disciplines than the bigger discipline needed uh, for this habituation that you're in. You want to create structure in all of your life. For example, like going to bed on time, getting up on time exercising routine, eating correctly, television and social media moderation. Now, there's a couple of reasons for doing this. One is self-evident, like you want to make sure that you're disciplined in all of these areas too. But these lesser little doable disciplines that will create an overall mindset of discipline in your life that will help you to address the bigger discipline that you're going to need as you work through the deeper rut or the deeper habituation that's in your life. And so there's two reasons that you want to create structure in your life. One is self-evident because you do want to go to bed on time and get up on time. You do want to have an exercise routine. You do want to eat correctly and moderate on television and social media. Now, you can add to this list. I've just given you a sampling and so that is obvious, but the second is that it builds up your discipline muscle because you're going after this bigger deal in your life, and this will help you uh, to get there. Number four, remove any material thing that tempts you to sin, like devices. Remove anything that you can possibly remove. As I talked about technology a while ago, you won't be able to remove all things because we are baptized in technology and we're not coming up 
uh, we're not coming up. This is going to be the rest of our lives, and there's, there's, we're, we're at the point of no return. But be honest, whether it's devices or other things, uh, make sure that you remove any material thing that tempts you to sin. Number five, appropriately confess your struggle to those you interact with daily, asking them to help you maintain an obedient course. You want to create a confessional attitude. I've talked about accountability a couple of times already, but I want to highlight confession here. This habit of confession is another discipline in your life that you can install in your life. Because once you get into the habit of confession, I, I don't know if you've had this experience or not. I have. If you don't have the habit of confessing sin, then it is hard to confess sin. It is hard to be transparent. It's hard to be weak. It's hard to be vulnerable. We have this internal awkwardness of our soul called biblical shame. And our temptation is to hide behind fig leaves. Confession does not come easy for a lot of people. And so you want to create that habit. And that's what I want to punctuate here is this idea of confessing. You want to become a confessional Christian. I'm not talking about just, just making up sins. But, but just confess when it's right, when it's biblical, when it's appropriate. And, and then you want to occasionally, you want to um, regularly is the word I'm looking for. You want to regularly interact with other people because you want to maintain that obedience. So it's not necessarily about confessing sin, but just, hey, this is my story. Now, you don't want to be identified as that. Well, here comes Rick, the, the struggler, such and such. No, that's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. And so you don't want to be sin-centered. I'm not saying that. But you want to create this confessional spirit, and you want to maintain that regularly. Uh, that will also help you from an accountability perspective. It will help you to walk in humility, to mature yourself. It will strengthen you in all the areas that God's grace can strengthen us. Identify those folks who interfere with your holy objectives and remove yourself from them if it's possible. Now, you could be at work, for example, and it's just not possible to extricate yourself from all situations. But be honest. Identify people who interfere with you. And just like those companions, you may need to switch some of your companions. Number seven, find a friend to walk with you down this path. Who is that person? How are they helping you? This gets back to right where we began. Write down the sin issue. Say it aloud. Tell somebody about it like highlighting the thing on the piece of paper. Now I want you to say the person's name out loud. Write it down on a piece of paper. Take ownership of it. Look at it. Talk to them. And then begin to just put write out a gratitude list of how they are helping you. And just thank God and begin to pray. And just express gratitude to God for this individual and how they are helping you. If you're the person that's stuck in a habituation, or if you know someone that you're trying to help, if they are not serious about change, and again, you can measure by how they react to this path that I just laid out and the things that you add to this path, but if they're not serious about the path, about the process, then there's nobody that can help them change. You can't force righteousness on anyone. I talked earlier about conflict resolution, about damage control. I, I, I'm sorry, about damage control, uh, where people are just trying to extricate themselves from a problem, but they just want the problem to go away, but they do not want to change. 
you're not judging them, but you have to discern that. And if they are not serious about that kind of transformation, then there is nothing that you, I mean, you can pray for them. Uh, perhaps there is a church discipline restoration process that you could put them in, uh, if that's appropriate, you all part of a local church. Uh, but there's very little that you can do for them if they are not serious. You can't pour transformation or repentance into them. God grants repentance. They have to come to that place in their lives where they are dead serious. They are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They have face planted in the hog lot of life, and now they have thrown in the white towel. They have said, no mas, no mas. I am ready to go. I'm ready to do. I'm ready to do the work. Part of what you'll recognize in a person like that is a teachable spirit. And so as you walk through this, they listen to this podcast, they watch the video, they read these show notes at lifeovercoffee.com. And you will recognize the spirit. And then you can measure along the way. And when you get to January the 15th, they're still there. They're still in the rigorous path of, of righteousness and they're walking in it. If they're not serious about change, then they will continue to live in a cycle. Purity, sin, regret. That's pretty much the cycle. Meaning that they're doing okay, then they're going to sin, they're going to feel regret, and then they're going to get on the path again, they're going to do okay, well, they're going to sin, then they're going to regret, repeat. And they'll do that over and over, and they'll do it for two reasons. One, they will not have a rational worldview. They will not have a proper foundation, meaning their covenant with God. He is not the transcending authority in their lives. He is not the transcending affection. There is another authority that manages them, and there is an affection that they have for something else who is not the Lord. And so their covenant is not Right. You'll also find that they do not understand the machinations of sin, that its source is in their heart, not out there somewhere, and they do not realize how spiritually sick they are. And then you're going to find that they will not do the things that you have laid out for them, whether it's things that I have presented to you here or things that you have tweaked, added here to give them. But there is a practical plan to help anyone stuck in a bad habit. And that is the title of what I just presented to you. And again, you can find this at episode 495 at lifeovercoffee.com. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.